Hello, AJT readers. My name is Katie Ross Driscoll, and I'm an assistant professor at the Emory School of Medicine and an AJT editorial fellow. Today, I'm hosting a specialty podcast in which each of the fellows has partnered with a member of the AJT editorial board to discuss a topic of interest to the transplant community. I'm joined by Dr. John Snyder, who is a statistical editor for AJT and the director of the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients. John, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, it's such a, a pleasure to be with you and to talk about some of the statistical issues uh, that we encounter most often at the American Journal of Transplantation. I've been the statistical editor for a few years now, and, and you start to see recurring themes. And so it'll just be a, a, a joy to talk with you about some of those issues today. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. So our, to- our topic for today is opportunities and pitfalls in research using transplant registries. And we'll be talking about everything from the kinds of research that you can do with registry data, considerations for study design, and as John alluded to, some common issues with data analysis data analysis that you see in this kind of research. And we are very lucky to have John here today as he is uniquely qualified to discuss this topic as the director of SRTR. John, would you mind starting us off by telling us a little bit about how transplant registry data is collected and the types of data that you collect? Absolutely. We're fortunate in the United States that we have a federal system We have that's managed by the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. And, and the SRTR exists in partnership with the OPTN. Both are uh, contracts under HRSA within the Department of U.S. Uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In the United States, transplant data are collected from member institutions, members members of the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, or OPTN. And there's a number of data elements and uh, that they supply up to the OPTN uh, to actually operate the system. So both transplant programs and organ procurement organizations supply data to the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, and um, those data cover the entire scope of the transplant process, uh, information on candidates at the time of listing, updates to their records as they progress through the waitlist, depending on the policies of the specific organ groups, information collected at the time of transplantation, information collected post-transplant at various time points after the patient has received their transplant. And then on the donor side, we have, of course, the deceased donor uh, registration data when we uh, have deceased donors uh, that are procured by the organ procurement organizations, as well as we have living donor uh, data submitted in by the transplant programs as well, anytime that they procure organs from a a living uh, donor. So all of that data comes in through the OPTN initially and is transferred over to the SRTR on a monthly basis. Uh, so that the SRTR can perform its functions with the data. Uh, We do a number of things with the data. We support OPTN policy development. We also do a number of uh, analytics um, on our own to advance the the field of transplantation. Uh, We publish uh, semi-annual data for each transplant program and organ procurement organization in the United States as part of the, the requirement to monitor the transplant system in the United States. And we make data available for researchers. So a number of researchers obtain the SRTR data through a data use agreement. And so you um, often will see data used from the SRTR and or the OPTN uh, within publications within AJT. Yeah, that's great. And as you mentioned, yeah, for manuscripts that use registry data, you'll see sometimes a couple of different sources cited. So you'll see it as listed as data coming from the OPTN or from SRTR, or sometimes you'll see um, 
folks citing the UNOS star files. So what are some of the differences between those different sources of transplant data? It's a great question. Yeah, both uh, the OPTN and the SRTR release data to researchers. Uh, both contracts contain that provision to, to do so. There are some differences, although they're not as great as I think what uh, some people may believe. Uh, I would say most of the differences are simply in structure and and breadth of what the researcher receives. So both data sets contain, of course, the OPTN data that is supplied in through the member institutions. The SRTR does some additional matching to look for deaths uh, in, for example, a limited access death master file made available uh, by NTIS, uh, formerly referred to as the Social Security Death Master File. We do some merging with CMS data to look for uh, events within the end-stage renal disease program, for example. And so there's some subtle differences like that, but I'd say one of the bigger differences is the star files that UNOS makes a available um, directly uh, tend to be more uh, organ specific and tailored to what the researcher is re requesting. So if it's perhaps a person doing a research project in kidney transplantation only, the star file that would be provided would be just the kidney, kidney relevant data from the OPTN. Uh, whereas the SRTR makes what we call our standard analysis file or the, the SAF for short available and it contains the entire registry. So researchers can certainly hone in on their specific target area of interest, but we, do, we make the same standardized file available to any researcher that, that requests it. Great, that's super helpful. And as you mentioned, that you can see some really high impact uses of registry data in AJT. I was looking back at the last couple of issues, and one area that you see this a lot is in program and policy evaluation. So, for example, in the last couple of AJT issues, there have been papers on the evaluation of the Kidney Accelerated Placement Project and on the impact of broader geographic distribution of lungs. What other types of high impact research does SRTR support? I think that it generally falls within, I'd say, three main buckets of research. One is uh, just general epidemiology of transplantation. Obviously, the SRTR database is the largest uh, such registry data uh, available globally. And so it's used, uh, the registry, I should have mentioned earlier, goes back to 1987 during the establishment of the OPTN uh, and the SRTR in the federal law. And so there's just a, a breadth of sample size available right here for this. And so we see just a lot of general epidemiology studies done in transplantation. Uh, obviously, it's observational research, um, but it has been increasingly used as perhaps uh, identification of real-world data control arms uh, that could supplement uh, you know, clinic-based uh, studies or clinical trials if they need some real-world, uh, maybe historic evidence about uh, outcomes following, say, lung transplantation in the country. Uh, so I think that's an increasingly common use of these data. Uh, within the SRTR ourselves, of course, we are uh, publishing papers on performance metrics, uh, both methodologically as well as just outcomes um, uh, that we would be monitoring. Sometimes uh, we have findings that are worthy of publication and would pursue those. Uh, we do some papers on uh, allocation policy monitoring. So when policies change and, and we've seen other researchers using the data for this purpose as well. How do we draw conclusions about the effect of those policy changes? I think that's a very worthy use of the registry data to the extent we can draw a causal inference about 
uh, the policy changed on such and such a date and then what happened uh, thereafter. And sometimes we publish data uh, looking at the simulations that the SRTR runs in advance of a policy change, you know, kind of a, a postmortem, if you will, it, you know, how, how did the simulation actually predict, how well did it predict what actually happened in practice? And so sometimes the simulations uh, are you know closer than other times and so we want to distill that down and make sure that we can learn from it as well as what can the community learn from it and how do we actually improve that simulation process going forward one last use i would mention it it, it, it somewhat falls in the just general epidemiology realm but an increasingly common use of the data is to link it with external data sources you know there, there are increasingly available data sources out there that might lend themselves to uh, learning things in the field of organ donation and transplantation beyond what's captured in the National Registry. And I just want to highlight that both the SRTR and UNOS have procedures in place for researchers to make those applications if they have a project whereby they want to link the data set to some available data set externally. Um, there are processes in place to support that. And so we certainly want the data used in that way to continue to advance the field. Yeah, I think I've seen a couple of those types of linkages like SEER linked with Medicare or was it the University Health System Consortium was a big one. Right, that's correct. Those are good examples of recent publications. Yes, the, the SRTR has an ongoing study with the National Cancer Institute, uh, the Transplant Cancer Match Study uh, led by Dr. Eric Engels. Uh, and so there's a, a, a broad linkage there to various regional cancer registries. And there's been a lot of great publications coming out of that project, uh, that collaboration with the NCI. Uh, other projects linking to pharmacy fill, pharmacy prescription data to, to get a better, you know, learn more about the types of medications that patients are feeling either pre or post transplant. That's a common use uh, of late and University Health Consortium is, is another good example. We've seen some publications coming from that linkage. I think linkage is, is kind of one way to address my next question, which is thinking about how you can be creative with some of this publicly available data, uh, because it's such a great resource for research. But a challenge can be making sure that your question is novel. Because when the data is available, if there's an obvious question, then the chances are that someone has asked it already. Do you have any advice for authors that are thinking about how to address this challenge uh, when designing registry studies? It is a great question. I'm always uh, encouraged by the enthusiasm of our community to do research using these data. Uh, but certainly, I think people have to do their homework and do those thorough literature reviews to understand what has already been, uh, what questions have already been addressed in the literature and how can we, how can we use the data to actually advance that beyond what's already been addressed. And so certainly at the AJT, when we're reviewing manuscripts, we're asking ourselves that question, is this a novel question? Is there anything new that's being presented here? Um, so I encourage authors for manuscripts coming into the AJT you know, to really emphasize what, what is novel, what is new about this analysis, especially if it's a topic that has been addressed uh, in the past or is not necessarily novel on its face. So what, what is being done here to advance the field? Uh, I would say that there's also room, though, for reassessing previously published work. Uh, our field evolves, things change. And so sometimes there may be common, you know, common knowledge, if you will, out there that, that, that may be not 
old treaties that are actually asking, is this previously published finding still valid? Uh, and sometimes I, I, I think authors are perhaps worried that submitting uh, papers like that may not be perceived as novel. But I, I think there is a place for that in the literature to continually reassess and, and note if, if things are changing, why would that be? And, and what have we learned? What, are, what can we continue to learn to improve the field? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. It can just, it can be a challenge sometimes on the author side to, to figure out how to frame those types of update studies as being novel. But you're right, things change, our patient population changes, policy changes. Um, it's important to, to have data that reflects what's going on in the current situation. Let's talk a little bit more about the actual data. So you collect data from, or the OPTN collects data from its member institutions. So it's got transplant centers submitting data. How does SRTR handle missing data and ensure data quality when you've got this variety in submitting sources? Great question. I I like to step back from that question and emphasize that it's incredibly important for anybody using registry data to understand the underlying process that that led to the data set that you have in front of you. The allocation policies change over time. The data collection policies change over time. The data collection forms themselves change over time. Perhaps an element has remained the same over time, but the policy governing its completeness has changed over time, perhaps changing it from a required field to an optional field or vice versa. And so I would encourage any researcher using these data for those key elements involved in your study, you must understand how are those data collected over time. I, I always encourage people at a minimum to do some frequency uh, tabulations or, or other univariate analyses of your key data elements over time and make sure that you are aware uh, if anything looks anomalous in those time series and analyses that it, it might become obvious to you that this variable wasn't collected from a certain time point within your study uh, cohort. Uh, and so the question about how we deal with missingness, we have to first understand what led to the missingness that we're seeing. Uh, if it was structural missingness, that it was, it was created by a policy change or a data collection change, uh, how we handle that is different from, uh, I'd say, the more missing at random type of problems that we might have. For example, if uh, somebody's height was not recorded or it was clearly recorded in error, uh, leading to a value that uh, was not plausible. You know, those are the types of things we can employ statistical techniques like multiple imputation to deal with that in our analyses. Uh, but I have seen some papers come through the AJT that had analyses of key data elements over time where the author did not realize that a certain element within the analysis was indeed uh, structurally missing for a number of years in their cohort. It actually wasn't collected at that time, you know, and, and if you try to employ something like multiple imputation across a scenario like that, that might lead to some uh, erroneous findings and, and questionable results. And so, you know, there's different ways to deal with missingness. I think most statisticians are, are uh, keyed into those those ways of dealing with it. But I would say even before that, you just need to be very careful about how those data were collected. So that's that's my biggest encouragement there. Yeah, such a great point for, for anyone doing cohorts that span years, but especially for those interested in trend analyses. You know, you may think that you've picked up a trend over time, but what you might have actually measured is the difference in the way the variable is collected. Absolutely. Another challenge that sometimes you'll see with uh, secondary data analysis is that since the authors don't have control over what variables are collected or how they're measured, 
they might not have the data collected in exactly the way that they would want. Have you seen any situations in which authors have attempted to approximate a variable of interest that wasn't collected with other types of variables or do you have thoughts on, on those types of situations? Well, I think increasingly we see interest in social determinants of health. Um, you know, can we link these data sets to other data sets maybe available from the U.S. Census Bureau or other things where we can merge in, you know, uh, state or county or even census tract level data to approximate some of the unmeasured factors that we wish we, we had available to us in our data set that would help us understand some of those societal factors that may be influencing uh, outcomes of our patients or even uh, donor potential or deceased donor conversion, organ use from these donors. Uh, these, these types of things uh, we see increasingly people trying to approximate those with some of those other types of data sources that are out there. And I, I encourage that. And, and we've undertaken that, you know, since, uh, currently undertaking a project in that realm as well. Uh, so I think that will be an increasingly common uh, use of external data sources used to approximate something uh, that we don't capture uh, or capture minimally uh, within the registry data itself. Those types of analyses come with their own epidemiologic challenges, right? How do we, when we ascribe a characteristics of a, of a population to the individual level within our studies, uh, but there certainly are statistical and epidemiologic methods you can employ to deal with those types of situations. And so I think the authors just need to be very upfront and explicit about how those are handled and, and really in the discussion paper, in the discussion section of the manuscript to address, you know, what are the limitations of what was done here and what, 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 how sensitive might our results be to those types of limitations? And so, but I think it's an, it's an encouraging use of the data. And I think there's becoming, you know, better and better and better data sets out there for this type of thing. Absolutely. My next question is maybe now more asking more about your perspective as a stats editor, as opposed to thinking about your SRTR role. So what are some common issues that you've seen come across your desk uh, in terms of analysis of registry data? Uh, it's a great question. I, I, I could name off, I think, a few of the top in, in my mind. Uh, one is being absolutely clear about whether your study is trying to be, are you trying to draw a causal inference about a certain factor? Registry data by their very nature are, are observational data rather than say clinical trial data where you're actively randomizing patients to one treatment or another. Uh, we don't have that luxury within registry data. So but be very clear about what are these factors of interest in your study and what are potential confounders or effect modifiers or, um, you know, what is the outcome? Be very clear and crisp in your definitions of these things so that the, the reviewers of your paper and the eventual readers of your paper uh, can understand very clearly what you've done. Uh, when we're looking at associations, I my personal bias is that it's often good to present an unadjusted analysis as a starting point and then have a very clear description of which confounders you were considering and why, and then, you know, walk the reader through that process. Okay, we observe this in the unadjusted data within the registry. We think potential confounders of this, this factor would be X, Y, and Z. Uh, we've taken those into account in our multivariable modeling, and here's how that actually modified or changed our original estimate before we did any risk adjustment uh, uh, to that effect. And so 
I think that really walks the reader through, you know, here's what we're seeing in the raw data. And once we do the more uh, sophisticated analysis to tease out that causal effect as best we can, this is what we see. And then in the description, in the discussion, you know, a discussion of what might be, what might we be missing? Uh, are there unmeasured confounders that, that we can envision and, and how likely would that be to, to nullify our effect? So I think that's one common thing is, is be clear uh, what you are trying to study and is this causal modeling or predictive modeling? And, and that helps the, the reviewers and the readers interpret your, your studies uh, very well. I would say uh, it's not uncommon for us to see errors in how we handle time to event data. So you might be familiar with typical survival analyses where we're just in transplant. This is common, right? What's the patient's survival from the time of transplant all the way through to some event, you know, whether that's death or graft loss or recorded acute rejection episode or a cancer, whatever the endpoint is that you're studying. I think sometimes we see people do things like present a table one where you're basically characterizing the, the, patient population that you've studied, and you might stratify that by whether or not they had the outcome and, and you're looking for differences across those two things that you might test with a univariate or bivariate t-test of some kind. And uh, we often point out that those types of studies are, are really uh, inappropriate for table one, right? Those are your outcome analysis rather than stratifying your outcome by that baseline. You're, you, you can't stratify your baseline characteristics table by whether or not the patient had the outcome of interest. Uh, that is what the survival analysis is for. And so being clear not to do that. And, and that leads to another associated problem where we find you might hear it referred to as immortal time bias, where people are using something in the future to define your baseline group. Uh, for example, uh, you know, patients that are prescribed rapamycin at six months or something, but then the survival analysis starts from time zero and you have groups of rapamycin users versus non-rapamycin users, just as one example. Uh, <laughs> the patients in the rapamycin group, of course, would have then been required to have survived those first six months. And so we have this immortal time period uh, so being careful not to stratify a, a survival analysis based on something that you observe in the future. Uh, there are time-dependent methods to account for those types of factors that should be employed. So being careful about that is good. I would say we published a piece in the in the pages of AJT. Uh, Dr. Wei on our team was the, the primary author. The piece was called The Relationship Between the C-Statistic and the Accuracy of Program-Specific Evaluations. It was really targeted at, at the notion that C statistics are commonly used in the literature to describe how well a predictive model works. Um, and that paper uh, debunks this idea that a C statistic is, is really the end-all be-all metric of how well a model, uh, it, it, how fit a model is to its task, I would say. Uh, so I would encourage you to look up that paper. It was uh, way 2019, the relationship between the C statistic and the accuracy of program specific evaluations. It does a very nice job of pointing out that the C statistic, even if your model fits perfectly to the data, the C statistic can be higher or lower, just dependent on the, the variability and risk within the patients that are being observed in your study. And so one needs to be very clear about when is the appropriate time to look at a C statistic versus uh, measures of predictive accuracy of a model. And so just encourage the readers to look that up. Um, we, we often see people criticize uh, met models within transplant. Maybe it's the kidney donor risk index, for example, as have, of having a relatively low C statistic. 
Whereas the criticism should be targeted toward how well that model predicts the outcomes. And in fact, you can have a model that predicts outcomes perfectly well uh, and has a C statistic of 0 0.5, right? So um, that is possible um, and vice versa. So learning about that, being clear about that, I think is a common challenge that we see. Absolutely. And especially important, going back to your first point, when you're trying to define your question as whether or not it's causal or predictive, I think a lot of times... I've seen this a couple of times, descriptions of a research question in predictive language and then uh, like pure associative statistics. So when you've got a predictive question, you'll start asking more of those questions about, okay, what does the model fit look like? What's the discrimination? What's the ability to predict the outcome? And that's where some of that information is really more important to provide. So I think that's right. a really useful suggestion useful for, for any researcher. A subtle, that's a subtle point, but I think it's worth digging into for those of us in this field. Yeah. Uh, my last question for you is about the potential impact of COVID-19 on the future of registry research. I think any study that examines trends is going to need to grapple with how they're going to handle the impact that COVID has had analytically. Uh, I used to think that a 2020 fixed effect might be enough, but I don't think that's the case anymore. What challenges do you anticipate for researchers in dealing with the impacts of COVID on study design, data collection, and analysis for registry research? Yeah, I mean, COVID is really a, obviously an unprecedented example uh, within any of our lifetimes, at least. But I think, again, we need to step back and, and it, it, it harkens back to something I discussed earlier about being very clear what the research question is. Right. What is the outcome of interest? What is the causal effect you're trying to model? And, and being aware. I mean, we, in, in these observational uh, time trend type analyses, there are many things that might be changing. Allocation policies change. Uh, treatments may change. Obviously, COVID had a, a strong impact on the operation of the nation's transplant system, particularly in the first few months of the pandemic, and, and continues to affect uh, mortality of our patients uh, ongoing. So I think from a researcher's perspective, though, you just need to be very clear, what am I trying to study and how am I handling COVID, if at all, in those analyses? What might COVID be doing to my outcomes? Can I handle it? Should I be trying to ignore COVID? Right. That's one question. Should I be censoring at a reported COVID death, for example, if I'm really not trying to take into account how COVID is impacting our patients and I'm trying to answer a question that's unrelated to COVID? That might be a viable example but or a viable method. But if you're trying to just better describe what's the mortality experience of our patients over time, uh, incorporating COVID outcomes into that is is the right thing to do. And so I think that there is no silver bullet answer to how do we handle COVID. The acuity circles policy for liver was implemented just one month prior to the declaration of national emergency by the president in March of 2020. And so when we try to study, you know, how did the acuity circles impact liver allocation and liver outcomes within our country, they're almost in inseparable, these two things when COVID hit and, and the policy changed and, and none of us could have predicted that, um, but I think that it, it just poses a challenge for the researchers. I think the best that you can do is, is perhaps some sensitivity analyses. This is how I handled the COVID era in my analysis. And if I handled it differently, it might look like this. And can I put some bounds around what I'm saying here uh, based on that? But I would say there's no right answer to this. Um, handling COVID in any analysis, it has to be dependent on what you're trying to, what you're trying to answer. Absolutely. That's super helpful. And 
I actually have used the example of acuity circles and COVID as an example of structural confounding for students mm -hmm. and confounding that's really, it's not fixable. Um, so I think <laughs> that'll be a challenge for, for folks evaluating that policy. For yeah, sure. I, feel, I fully agree with you, Katie, that it's not, it's not fixable as you say, right? It's, <laughs> but you can maybe as a, as an analyst, as an epidemiologist, as a statistician, you can look at, you know, what if I look at it this way, or I look at it that way, you know, how does that impact what I'm finding? Uh, that le at least if nothing else gives your reader of your research, some context and, and they can, you know, use their own intuition to interpret those results. Uh, but it's a, it's a substantial challenge. Uh, I think there will be a lot of COVID related sensitivity analyses and future manuscripts, which is probably the best way <laughs> to handle it. I think so. Yeah. Well, great. I think that you have answered all of my questions. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with the listeners of this podcast? Well, I would just encourage, you know, continued clarity. I think that that is what we like to see at the AJT for any manuscripts that are submitted is very precise and clear descriptions of the methods that were employed and justification of those methods. Uh, I think that you know, we, we are beyond the era of, you know, we can simply have a, a rote you know, paragraph of the methods employed and a description of what, what p-value you considered significant. I think that there needs to be some careful thought about, you know, here was the question I was, I was trying to answer and here's the statistics I employed to arrive at that answer um, and why. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes we are sending papers back to the author saying, you need to describe more what test was performed here. We might see p-values uh, provided for figures and tables, uh, but no description in the methods of what test was actually performed or how the model was built, no modeling results, which often modeling results can be relegated to the supplemental materials for those interested readers. Uh, but I think that err on the side of, of completeness in your description of the methods used. And I think that goes a long way to actually communicating and, and helping the editorial team adjudicate your paper. Um, did they do the right thing? Was the method appropriate? Um, did they justify the method? Um, was it clear? Is it is it well described? I mean, th these are things that I know I'm looking for when reviewing papers. I just encourage our, our authors to all um, take that to heart as you uh, submit your papers up to the AJT. Just ask yourself that question. Am I being clear on what, what was done here? That's great advice. Thank you so much, John, for talking with me today. And thank you to the Editorial Fellowship Program for the opportunity to record this specialty podcast. And thanks to anybody listening. I hope that this discussion was useful for anyone considering conducting research using transplant registry data. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 